So 1 Peter, chapter 1, starting from verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever." And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. G'day, everyone. My name's Lindsay. I'm one of the ministry apprentices here at St. Matthew's. Uh, it'll be a great help to have that passage open in front of you uh, from 1 Peter. We're going to be flicking through that together. Uh, well, have you ever had a sliding doors moment? An event or decision that changed everything? Whether you knew it at the time or not, was there a moment that changed everything about you. Uh, It could have been your parents taking a job on the other side of the world or moving you across the country. Uh, Maybe you were deciding between two degrees at two different campuses. Uh, Maybe it was something more in the moment, missing a flight or a chance encounter in the schoolyard that changed your outlook on everything. Maybe you were meant to be somewhere when something terrible happened, but by chance you weren't there and were kept safe. It's a humbling thing to think about, isn't it? To think that your life would be completely different if this thing had or hadn't happened, if this moment had or hadn't happened to you. It can bring a real clarity and focus to our lives. Uh, My sliding doors moment was being invited on a little camp called Camping Ground back in 2011. 
uh, invite along to this camp run by this strange church that I've never been to. Uh, and on that camp, I met most of the people who are my best friends now. And I met the person who'd become my wife as well. Uh, whether or not you can think of a moment like that, uh, in this passage that we're looking at tonight, Peter says that all Christians have had a sliding doors moment, a massive one. And it hasn't just changed who our friends are or where we work or who we're married to. It's changed us. It's changed everything about us. It's changed our identity. Uh, We're in week two of our sermon series in 1 Peter. And last week we saw that Christians are to think of themselves as exiles. All through the book, Peter's going to keep coming back to this idea. Peter calls Christians exiles and foreigners. He's going to thrash out scenarios where Christians will be made to feel different and excluded and mistreated. Uh, He teaches Christians that they've been called to follow the example of Jesus, suffering unfairly because of their obedience to God. And if you've been a Christian for longer than about half an hour, you've probably already experienced something of what Peter is talking about. That feeling of otherness, of separateness. That feeling you get when your friends don't understand why Sunday night is off limits for hanging out. That feeling you get when you don't join in with coarse joking in your workplace. That feeling of otherness you get when you read the news headlines and sometimes feel attacked, even though your names aren't written there. Uh, Now, maybe you're here tonight and you're investigating Christianity and who Jesus is, and maybe you're thinking, gee, it sounds like a tough sell, being a Christian. Uh, But last week we saw that while being a life of suffering, the Christian life is actually one of joy and praise. We saw that if we look outside the here and now, that actually living a holy life makes perfect sense. Because even though striving to be holy now will mean suffering now, it will mean glory later. And before Peter dives into the rest of the book, there's one more thing he wants to put in place for us. There's one more thing he needs to teach us to make the whole thing run. And that's what we're going to look at tonight our sliding doors moment, the moment that will make sense of us living as exiles. So what is it? What's our sliding doors moment? Peter says that it's God redeeming us. And he says it changes everything. Let's read from verse 17 down to verse 20. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter says that our lives now should be marked by reverent fear. Now, uh, the fear of God, that's a big topic and a big idea in the Bible. Uh, if you want to uh, ask questions about the fear of God, we do have Q&A afterwards, uh, or you can come speak to me in the foyer afterwards if you've got some questions. Uh, but what I'm going to do when you come and ask me about the fear of God is tell you to read this book. Uh, this book is called Rejoice and Tremble. It's by one of my all-time favourite authors, Michael Reeves. 
and he does a really good and helpful deep dive uh, on what it means to fear God. Uh, he tells us what it is and was it what it isn't. Uh, but in this passage that we've just looked at, uh, we get a great picture of what the fear of God means. We live with reverent fear because of who God is and what God does. God the Father is our judge. That's who he is. Our Father is the God who defines what's right and what's wrong. And so we should be concerned about his approval. There are four times uh, in Peter's letter where he talks about fear. Twice he says that we should fear God. And twice he says that we shouldn't fear people. But so naturally, we put those two things the other way around, don't we? I have lost hours of sleep fearing people, wondering what their judgment of me is. But I'm so slow to fear God, to be concerned about his approval, to weigh up my actions against what he says is right and wrong. Now, it's true that when God looks at Christians, he sees the righteousness of Jesus that's been given to us when we put our trust in him. But that doesn't mean that he's blind to how we live. That word that's used to describe God as impartial, that means that God is not prone to favoritism. You can't bribe God. He doesn't look the other way when we serve on hospitality and when we do MTS apprenticeships. Uh, He doesn't look the other way when we sin because of those things. Uh, Jesus would tell us uh, in Luke 17, uh, verse 10, that when we do those things, we're just doing our duty to our God. We're doing the duty of slaves to a master. God is the judge. That's who he is. But what he's done is redeem us. Uh, Now, redeem, that sounds good, but what does that mean? Has he redeemed us like I redeem uh, the Bunnings vouchers that I get for my birthday? What does it mean that he's redeemed us? Uh, Well, this word redeemed uh, is the process that a hostage goes through, uh, which all of a sudden sounds a lot more interesting than a trip to Bunnings, doesn't it? Uh, Peter says we were hostages, hostages who've been redeemed. Uh, So here's the process that a hostage goes on. A hostage is captured, a ransom is paid, and then we're set free. They're given a new life. That's the process. And Peter says, before someone becomes a Christian, they are trapped in an empty way of life. Whether uh, it's being a slave to other people's approval, whether it's the accumulation of wealth and comfort, whether it's just being known as a grounded and centred positive person, however you identified yourself before you became a Christian, whoever you were before you met Jesus, you were a slave to that. For me, uh, that thing was a desire to be right, to be proved right, uh, and then responding in anger when people didn't fit into my ideas of right and wrong. And I was a hostage to that way of life. It was empty. It was going nowhere. And I was fully ready to live the rest of my life that way. Realising that we've been redeemed 
starts to make sense of reverent fear. We're reverent at Anzac Day services because we feel the weight of what's been done to us. We shudder at the thought of what would have, hap- what would have happened without that sacrifice. Peter says our lives should be guided and focused by that kind of fear. But Peter also tells us that, thankfully, the ransom has been paid. And how is that ransom paid? How are we set free? With the precious blood of Christ. God didn't pay our ransom with monopoly money. He didn't pay it with gold. He didn't pay it with all the Bitcoin in the world. He paid it with the blood of his son, his most precious possession. I would give up absolutely everything I own tomorrow if it meant keeping my son Lawson. My car, my bike, my house, no contest. Get rid of it. But the blood of Jesus was the only thing that would cover the cost of our sin. And God was willing to pay that price to set us free, to redeem us. Seeing how much God loves us makes us love him, but it makes us fear him too. God has extended outrageous kindness to us. At the heart of the gospel is this idea of free grace. Grace is free to us, but it's costly to God. We should believe in free grace, but so often we believe in cheap grace. We so often treat God like he redeemed us with monopoly money. Do we sometimes live out our lives without reverent fear? It's possible to know the teachings of the Bible, to hear the call to live as an exile, to make holiness and obedience the markers in our lives, but to feel no allegiance to Jesus. We're so quick to start a bargaining process with God in our heads, aren't we? Is it worth it, God? What's in it for me? Imagine if we faced suffering by reminding ourselves how precious the blood of the perfect lamb is. Imagine if our first thought wasn't, what feels right or wrong? Imagine if instead our response was listening to the judge who knows right and wrong. Sometimes uh, filling in our tax returns correctly so that we end up with less money than everyone else doesn't make sense. Sometimes telling the truth when we know a little white lie would just make all of our problems go away seems like too much effort. Sometimes a bit of gossip just makes us feel a bit better, a little bit more in control. Peter says to us, Remember that those things are part of an empty way of life, a life that trapped us, a life that we've been set free from, and it's a way of life that cost Jesus his life. But there's a third phase to the hostage process, isn't there? You're trapped, a ransom is paid, and then you're set free. You're given a new life. But what goes in that third slot? Who decides what this new life looks like? Is it just a free pass, a hall pass to do whatever we want? Well, Peter would say, you're taken from a place of danger. 
You've been given safety and freedom. You've been given a new life. And so this new life should be fueled by the word of God. And this new life is for working together. Firstly, our new life is fueled by the word of God. Let's pick it up at verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. This new birth that we have, this new life, has come about because of the word of God. See, everyone is trapped in this empty way of life. And Jesus' death is a perfect enough thing to cover the price of everyone's sin. But not everyone has made it out. Step one to step two happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus died and rose again. But how does step two to step three happen? How is the ransom payment made effective? How do you enter this new life? It's by believing and receiving the word of God. When God's word is preached to someone and they believe that it's the word of God, when they put their trust in Jesus, they are born again. The person who is trapped in an empty way of life is on a one-way track to death. They have a glory like the flowers of the field. It's real and it's good, but it fades away. It's only when we're born again by God's word, which is living and enduring, that we can really live. And God's word tells us that the way you were born into this life is the same way that you grow up in it. Remember when Peter said God's word was living and enduring? Let's read what this living and enduring word of God can do. Let's read chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter says you grow up by enjoying pure spiritual milk. If we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we should want more of that stuff that's given us that taste. And so, uh, there's a very simple application here. We should be spending time in God's Word. This book is the thing that will make us grow. We should get God's Word into us whenever we can. So, good job, everyone. Immediate implementation of that application. You're all getting God's words preached to you right now. Uh, But let's press into that idea a little bit deeper. Live by God's word, read it, have it preached to you. Excellent. But what would it look like for a Christian to obey or disobey verses 1 and 2? What would not craving pure spiritual milk look like? It would look like taking in and living out things other than the good word of God. I'll say that again. It will look like taking in and living out things other than the good word of God. What does that mean in English? Well, are there things that you crave, your go-to sources 
of information and inspiration that aren't the word of God? Are we mixing in other things? Do we water down God's pure word? We'll be able to answer that question for ourselves by asking ourselves this question. Do the things we crave lead us to loving other people deeply, like we're called to do in verse 22, or do they fill us with deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind, like in chapter 2, verse 1, things that we're told to get rid of? What do we crave more? The goodness of the Bible or the TV show that's at the top of our watch list on Netflix? What do we think is more relevant? The living and enduring word of God or the news that changes every day? Who do we think is wiser? Peter or our favourite podcaster? Peter's going to warn us in his second letter that this diluting of God's word, this mixing in of other things, it can even happen in church when people preach something other than the gospel that the apostles preached. But here Peter wants to say, you need strength, you need fuel for the fight, you need to grow up in your salvation, you need energy to grow in holiness. We need constant reminders that the way of life we were in was empty and the thing we should reach for, the thing that we can grab hold of anytime, the best, most nutrient-rich superfood, the pure fuel that will actually produce holiness in us is God's word. The choice between love and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, it seems like a no-brainer, but I'm always going to drift towards envy. What I need is pure spiritual milk to fuel me for the pursuit of holiness. The thing that brought us into this new life is the thing that keeps us alive, that fuels us now. Peter says we've been redeemed, we've been given new lives that are fueled by the word, and we've been given new lives for our work together. Redemption unites us to God, but it unites us to each other as well. God has redeemed us to work together towards holiness. Together we've been made holy to be holy. Let's read from verse 4 and verse 5 of chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We get a really similar idea if we jump down to verse 9 and 10. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not the people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, If, as Bradley was reading that section for us, you picked up on some new language, uh, that's good because Peter's introducing a whole bunch of Jewish Old Testament ideas here in this section of 1 Peter. 
There's priests, there's sacrifices, there's cornerstones, living stones, there's temples, there's the lot. Uh, But Peter isn't just using uh, everyday illustrations like he was before, like gold and milk and seed. He's very deliberately using and applying Old Testament images. And it's helpful to remember that he's most likely not writing to Jewish people. He's writing to Gentiles like you and me. So it would be very easy to skim read over this section and say, oh, there's a lot of Jewish words in there that I don't understand. That's okay. But he's deliberately using these words because he wants them to understand their purpose for their new lives. The reason Peter gets his readers flicking back into the Old Testament is because the Old Testament is their origin story. Our identity as God's people has been modelled by the people of Israel. And so when we read the Old Testament, we aren't just reading history, we're reading our history. As we read it, we can be asking ourselves, what is God hoping to achieve here? Why are these priests being appointed? How are Israel meant to be treating and witnessing to the people around them? And then we can ask, well, how does that shape how I live in light of what Jesus has done for me? How do we live as God's people together? Israel is called to keep themselves separate in lots and lots of ways. We can see that in some of the ways they're told to treat their neighbours and some of the laws that they're given because they're told to keep their holiness intact. They're supposed to be ruthless about weeding out sin so that they can be God's people, a separate holy nation, Their identity time and time again is defined not by what they've done. Their purpose in life isn't self-fulfillment or academic excellence. It's being God's people together, a nation of people that God has made his own, his treasured possession. They're made holy to be holy. But unfortunately, when we read the Old Testament, we see that Israel's legacy doesn't match their identity. Their legacy isn't one of holiness and otherness like it should be. It's one of sameness. The quickest way to give up this new life that God has given them is sameness. It's doing the things that make them look like everyone else around them. Israel gives us the example of how not to do our job. But Jesus is the one who did this job perfectly. By the time Jesus comes, the Israelites are the one who reject him, who reject Jesus, who don't recognise him as the cornerstone for their identity. And people are still rejecting Jesus today. Let's pick it up from verse 7. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Uh, If you are here tonight investigating Jesus and Christianity, uh, it's wonderful to have you here, but it's crucial to hear that warning that Peter has for us. Jesus might end up being something different to what you first thought. If you reject Jesus, you wouldn't be the first and you won't be the last person to miss who he is. 
He's the cornerstone that everything else is built on. If you want to get church, if you want to understand Christians, you have to get Jesus. You have to know who he is. He's the building block for the church. You can't separate them, pull them apart. You'll always be able to find examples of Christians not being perfect like Jesus. The little stones, as Peter calls us, won't be perfect like the living stone is. But God has chosen to use these little living stones to build his church, to build a people for himself. And so look at Jesus. Decide if you want him to be your cornerstone if you're checking out Jesus and Christianity. Uh, But for us Christians, uh, while Israel's story is our origin story, their legacy doesn't have to be our legacy. With Jesus as our cornerstone, we get to build on his good work. Israel's story is our history, and Jesus' story is our future. We are precious and chosen by God because Jesus is the precious and chosen cornerstone in verse 6. We are rejected here and now because Jesus was rejected back then. Although the people of the time rejected Jesus and will reject us, God promises us in this passage to never reject us, to never put us to shame. Just like Jesus has been lifted up in glory, so will we. So, take a moment, look at the people around you. Look at the people who God has brought along to Uni Church tonight. We, together, have been made holy to be holy. Your story of redemption isn't just about you. It's about being saved into a new life in which these people that you just looked at are your co-workers, your fellow countrymen and women. Your identity isn't just as an individual who's been saved by God. Our identity is being part of a holy nation, not gathered together and bunkered down in one place like Israel was, but scattered across the earth. For the time being, we're foreigners because our home isn't in the Middle East. It's in the new creation. Verse 5 says that together we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When we live together and work together to be the holy people of God, when we devote ourselves to living in line with the new life that God has given us, when we declare these praises, when we tell other people about how we've been brought from death to life, from darkness to light, we are doing something that pleases God. We are offering our lives as acceptable sacrifices to our Father the impartial judge. We've looked at lots of reasons why we, can't, why we can live as exiles, but one more reason that Peter gives us here is that we can live as exiles because we can do it together. Living as individuals, forging our own path, is exhausting. It's crushing. We can live as exiles because we've been united together to do this work to be living stones built on a cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Here is your sliding doors moment. 
Here is the moment that should focus and clarify every decision you make for the rest of your life. Your redemption. Everything about my life would be different if I hadn't been redeemed. I would still be stuck in an empty way of life, ready to fade away with the grass of the field. But now we are being built together into a temple. We are the new dwelling place of God himself. We are exiles who have been given a purpose, an identity. We get to work together. We get to do that do work that is, ex- is acceptable to God himself. And so, uh, as we asked ourselves last week, in light of all of this, how much more ready do you feel to live as an exile for the next 60 years? Why don't we pray for God's help to do that? Gracious Lord, we thank you so much for our redemption. We thank you that we have been rescued from an empty way of life, and we thank you that you paid that cost with the blood of your precious son, Jesus. Please help us to remember him. Help us to live with reverent fear of you. Help us to be excited about the new lives that you have given us, to live fueled by your word, and to work together for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing again now.